revenue do you believe came from Dogecoin? Ooh, 50? Not quite, 34%. So let's just call it a third. This is, it's literally a joke. Like a third of a third of their revenue is like Jokes literally- Jokes on you, Dougals. Jokes <laughs> on you. <laughs> Egg on my face. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Well, give the people what they want already. Let's talk. Oh, what's what's been going on in your world, man? I mean, nothing is as exciting as you. I hear you uh, hit the 49th state. Yeah, it's... And it was nice. It was nice. It was, um, there was stress in getting to the place because you got to, you got to get your, your test and you have to get the test within 72 hours. I know. And you were telling me not to worry about this. You got to get the seven, the test within 72 hours. And then the, the guy at the place I got it at was like, you're probably not going to get this in time. I was, <laughs> I was like, I was like, well, what is so? I mean, it, it came in in plenty of time, you know, but, it, <laughs> but he, he, just, probably, he just said, <laughs> your vacation's probably destroyed. Exactly. I was like, why, why you got to start things off that way? But it came back. All was good. Um, so, yeah, we had a real good time, but good to be back. So there's so much fun stuff to talk about today. We got investor expectations, Dr. Doom. What else do we got? Yeah, there, there's, there's so much. Well, is, are you, would you be okay if I started off talking about dollar stores? Oh, please, please, please. Oh. please. So disclaimer, not investment advice, but disclaimer, in my non-model portfolio, I'm a holder of Dollar General. And so this is, this is not to, to pump any of that. I just thought this was really interesting. There's this article that covered the economics of dollar stores, and it's fascinating stuff, man. Um, Wait, I just got to drop some knowledge real quick. So if your kids are caught up in the consumerism culture of the United States, let me just say, instead of driving to Target and having them walk down the the toy aisle where everything costs like 10 to 50 bucks take them to not dollar general dollar tree where you walk down the aisle and everything costs a buck and you just saved yourself some serious coin that that you did and another disclaimer i'm a former employee of dollar tree so i'm really oh, this just is brilliant I'm, I'm pretty much an expert I've, <laughs> I've read an article and worked at a worked at one so <laughs> that, that that qualifies you so so get this who which dollar store opens 2.5 stores a day right now dollar general isn't that insane which it's dollar insane. store has more uh locations than mcdonald's uh, that would probably be dollar tree because i also own family dollar that's also dollar general according really? to what i saw this week the three largest dollar store companies right they own 70 percent of the market are dollar general dollar tree and family dollar yeah. and dollar tree owns family dollar and dollar tree and so I it it depends on are you gonna pick not a fight with me on my dollar store knowledge? No, like, dude, is... and I'm I'm all about Dollar General. I just told you, <laughs> like I'm all game for it. And they're they're trying to get into not dollar stores like now, which is gonna be interesting. But yeah, well, okay. Also, for the listeners who don't know, Dollar General has things that aren't a dollar. You can buy things for like three bucks, five bucks, yeah, seven bucks. Yeah. Um, it's like generally around a dollar. I think is where the name comes from. No, <laughs> Generally, let's not re, get some rebranding going on. Talk to me about the oh well, and I know we're going to talk about uh, DGX, which is sweeping the metro areas. 
um, which is like an upscale dollar store. It's an upscale Dollar General. Sorry, you got me so excited about dollar stores that I'm stealing your thunder here. What is the target client base in terms of income for a Dollar General? Well, so it's under 40K. What I find to be interesting is uh, like the cultural infighting that exists between some of these organizations like Walmart versus Target versus uh, dollar stores. I remember when I, so wait, this is way back in the day, but uh, when I was leaving school, Target had this GM type program, like general manager program where they'd rotate you in. Um, and so I was interviewing to do that. And the amount of trash that they would talk about, <laughs> <laughs> like these other types of companies is just, it was astounding to me. It was really astounding. They, uh, I remember them covering the fact that Walmart folks buy in cash and they're like, who, what kind of clientele do you have if you're spending cash? It's like, that just seems, it just seems mean. Like it just it seems really mean. It anyway. all spends the same, man. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But so, so this is a $94 billion a year industry and three companies, three different types of stores run 70% of it, which we just discussed who those were. Um, their gross profits of these stores are roughly 30 cents, which is higher than Target or Walmart. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's because they sell uh, either lower quality or lower quantity type products um, or both. So they basically just have this stuff that either in one category, nobody wants. So it's like discontinued merchandise, oversupplied merchandise, that kind of stuff. Or they will work with, they'll, they'll partner with other companies to just make smaller, like all the travel sizes type, yeah. type of things. And it's because, and this is where it starts to get a little bit, you can, you can make it controversial as to whether or not this is capitalist gouging or not. But the clientele, as you mentioned, the under, under $40,000 a year folks that they're targeting often can't afford the larger quantities and they are uh, more price conscious, obviously in general. Yeah. But the, what they're selling to them is more expensive per whatever unit. Per ounce. Yeah. Typically. Per, per, yes. Yeah. Um, and the, the numbers were, I'll, I'll run some out here. So one is if you take Scott toilet paper at Dollar Tree, it'd be $2 and five cents per hundred square feet, Target $1.71, Walmart 188, Costco 187, right? So you're, that's, that's pretty significant, more than 10% increased. Um, yeah. and it's similar across like Old Spice deodorant, Sharpie pen. I mean, why you got to gouge me on my Sharpie pen? Right. Here's the... Uh, we could spend the whole episode on this. I find this so fascinating. So one, my local dollar store is freaking amazing. Which because one you can get, this is a Dollar Tree. You okay. can get, um, like we got some M&Ms that had, they're like called fudge flavored. They're like have, or brownie flavored or something like that. Like I've never seen these before. These are obviously discontinued. Yep. And they're kind of amazing. It's like you're in Europe shopping for candy that you've never seen. They have knockoff Sour Patch Kids, which are called Sour Jacks, which are actually yeah. like pretty good, I think. If you buy Kleenex there, it's like a smaller size, but it turns out for me, that's like perfect fit in my car. Like I'm a huge fan of this sort of <laughs> How stuff. How small is your car <laughs> that you need to buy uh, a smaller size car? Sorry, <laughs> sorry, like to fit in my center console. Let me... <laughs> do, you have to, do you have to rent a car just to be able to go pick up the Kleenex? <laughs> <laughs> well so you like you like or you're throwing out costco prices right and so costco is like a whole different thing i don't think it's necessarily fair i hate buying shampoo that's gonna last me for like nine months like that's almost torture to me yeah. i don't care if it was like one penny cheaper per ounce it, it's 
yeah, that's yeah. not my thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. So on this, uh, the critique I saw this week, which is similar, uh, was more about Dollar General. And it talked about Dollar General strategy in rural communities where it often targets places where the there's no Walmart, obviously. Well, that's yeah. good competitive practice in my eyes. You don't want to go compete against Walmart. You're, that's a losing game. And then there was some criticism around, oh, they don't stack much or carry much produce. And in these rural places, this could be like food a food grocery store. Douglas, you know about food deserts, right? Yeah, food deserts. For those who don't know, a food desert happens surprisingly a lot in rural America. And it's basically a place, I think they define it as like more than 20 miles away from a basic grocery store. And if you live in one of those places, though it becomes a long trek to get basic groceries. And because that's a longer commute for you, you go less frequently. So you, when you go, you stock up. And there's a lot of concern, I'd say, about having adequate access to food and vegetables in yep. those things. Yep. Well, so this critique kind of says, and Dollar General doesn't carry much food and vegetables, as if it's a bad thing. Like, I'd, I'd call it an inconvenient thing, but I don't think it's like their job as a business model to carry more fruits and vegetables. That's, there's a reason they don't. It's, they spoil. Like, that's an entirely different business. It's harder to make profits on those things. Yeah, I, I, I think see you, you shaking your head. Because I... There's, to a certain extent, I agree. There's a, you can get into the whole conscious capitalism argument, I think, around here as to whether capitalist organizations should also think about the responsibility they have for their specific communities that they're serving, which I could go both directions, I think, around yeah. that. But I, it's not, it's not a, I don't think it's a straightforward conversation. Oh, it's not a, sorry. I'm not trying to come across as straightforward. It's a difficult challenge. Uh, I think it's one of those things that if Donald took that on as a, conscious capitalism initiative i would applaud from the rooftops i'd be super happy about it but i'm not gonna throw shade if they're not doing it i understand how that doesn't make business sense for them and you know we talk almost every week about the new trillion dollar package of something if our government wanted to subsidize some food and vegetables in food deserts in this country and that would cost them 17 dollars i mean it, Compared to what we spend on other things, that would cost absolutely nothing. Yeah. By all means, like address that issue. But I understand why there's not an easy way to address it in a profit-first mentality. To to be fair, to not me. So I, I don't know what the, the opposite of to be fair. But uh, I own the stock. So uh, you know, as, as much as I, I can talk about, I argue both ways. I, I bought Dollar General, so I I can't really, I don't think, fairly sit back and say like they suck and you know, conscious capitalism, all that kind of stuff, at least not with them. I mean, I think the business model is so fascinating. I really did a deep dive on the stock like five years back or something. And I'm definitely kicking myself for not purchasing it at that time. Because in a way, it's like the new Walmart in terms of their business model. And I remember, gosh, it's probably the 90s. I lived in a fairly small town. Like Walmart came to town and it was disruptive, you know, like it was unlike anything yep. Yep. that we had seen before. And it got a lot of flack. It almost got some of the same criticism that I see Dollar General getting these days. But it's funny that that's where Walmart kind of built their core business model in in the 90s and early 2000s, potentially. And now someone else is saying, but there, there's these under 
other underserved areas that not even Walmart wants to go attack. Yeah. And we're, we're happy to take that. And, and in some cases, Walmart, stuff. Walmart can't. So another couple facts that were thrown out in this article were the dollar stores are so much smaller. And so let's call it about, I think it was 10,000 square feet for yeah. a dollar store. Walmarts are huge and cost like $15 million to make or to, yeah. to put one up to get them set up, whereas you can get one of these set up for 250K. And so in some cases, it's not economical for a Walmart to be able to do that because they don't have mini stores you know, or anything of that nature. They're super centers. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for pointing that out because that is... Um... I wasn't trying to imply that a $15 million Walmart needed to show up in these locations because the population <laughs> just doesn't bear that. But effectively, yeah, Walmart's all of Walmart's market research said bigger, bigger, bigger. You know, everything yeah. turned into we have tires, we have groceries, everything else. Dollar General is much like it's your basic necessities. And it's kind of a grocery store, but not really. It's kind of a convenience store, but not really. And it's right on a, you know, fairly busy two to four lane highway in rural America. I saw a really good graphic of where their locations are and the Southeast is covered, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's all I think that's the bread and butter. So one of the plays with Dollar General, I think they're, or dollar stores, you could say in general, they print cash anyway, but during recessionary times, if I might be getting this fact a little bit wrong, but it's 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 sitting somewhere in my memory banks. In 2008, the best performing stock was Dollar Tree. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And it's because everyone becomes price conscious, right? Cost conscious um, at that time. And do you know who, reaching to the, to the fishbowl for a little transition here, do you know who, unsurprisingly, is calling the next depression? Actually, I wouldn't even go recession, but depression. Sonic the Hedgehog. Yes. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Remember we talked about uh, the elder hedgehog um, on Reddit, if you oh, yes, we did. We did. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Dr. Doom, real name, Norelli Rubini is calling, is calling this. So did you, did you read through his recent article? I, I glanced at it, but I'm going to use your, uh, your expertise with oh, uh, researching boring things on this one. <laughs> I'm so good at that. So good. <laughs> um, so little bit of background. Rubini is an economist, um, not just any economist. He worked for like advisor to the White House and all this kind of stuff. So he's a, he's a big deal. He used to be a professor at NYU in, about 20 years ago-ish, not quite, but he spent years calling the housing bubble and like trying to write papers. Nobody would listen to him. So he's talking about the housing bubble in the recession. That's where he got his nickname, Dr. Doom. Well, he's back, baby. And what he's saying this gets into a number of items that we've talked about over the last months, Skippy, except he does it in a much more intelligent way. Sometimes you might say, or maybe I shouldn't say intelligent. He does it in a much more um, economically rigorous, maybe is a better, better way to put it. Yeah. Way. So what he's saying, uh, and feel free to, to pop in here, because I'm just going to go through like a few of the bullets that, that he listed out. So he talks about the stagflation of the 1970s. Right, which we've discussed and stagflation means stagnant economy and high inflation. Um, well, and let me tie that together, uh, yep. not to interrupt, but uh, we talked about inflation in the seventies a while back, the inflation in the seventies averaged about 10% a year. And so $1 uh, at the start of 1970 was actually worth 48 cents in 1979. Crazy. I yeah, mean, crazy. We, and we haven't dealt with that. 
So that's certainly a concern. And then what he talks about is the 2007, 2009 period, right? Which we were just discussing and how high debt ratios drove primarily that recession, right? Housing bubble, et cetera. Since then, we've had loose monetary policy. This is the quantitative easing that we've discussed a bunch, which he's saying is going to lead to inflation and will also be in a debt crisis. So the big, the big difference is from both of those two is you're kind of, you're combining them. And I don't need to go through the detail here because he, he talks about the warning signs that we've also discussed where it's like prices or asset prices are inflated across the board. SPACs, meme stocks, housing, tech assets, right? All of that. And then uh, the same policies that are feeding uh, these asset prices are also going to be feeding consumer price inflation, which can create stagflation issues. Now, what he's saying is going to be the big difference, and this gets this connects to another point we discussed, is if you go to 2007, 2009, we had an aggregate demand shock, right? Mm-hmm. So people couldn't, people couldn't buy things is what happened. But he's saying now we're getting an aggregate supply shock. Um, and those supply shocks is what's going to cause our next, what he's calling depression. And we, he also brings up a, an economist that we talked a few weeks ago, Minsky. And what he's saying is we're going to hit a Minsky moment, right? So Minsky discussed how you go from stability to fragility to crisis. And he's saying that that's basically where we're getting to. And what we're going to need is your boy. He said, we're going to need a Volcker type moment, someone to come in and do do Volcker things. However, said if you do Volcker things right now because of the debt, it's not like the recession we got in the early 1980s. It's going to be something much more severe because... Of, of all the debt that exists in the government, the debt that exists in the private sector and the government in the debt that exists with companies. And so this is, it's similar to themes like we've discussed. Um, I just, I love the way that, that he kind of put it down. Well, so my thoughts on this are evolving. And uh, I guess that's a heads up to the listener that what I say this week might be stupid because my thoughts might evolve uh, in six weeks. I might say something different, but I'm starting to think we do need a Volcker moment of some of some level, uh, meaning you need rates to rise significantly. Not not necessarily need. Let me restate that. It would be beneficial in many ways for some point in the next five years to have rates rise significantly and deal with the shock that comes with that because that's going to slow demand. It's going to make current debt in place much more, I'll call it valuable because if you have debt at 1%, but if you have to go out and take a new loan at 10%, all of a sudden you're not going to take that new loan. So you're going to tighten your belt and you're going to do what you can with the the debt that's already on the books. I just think we're headed that direction. I I really don't know how you navigate these waters without if money remains cheap forever, I see a lot of potential doom and gloom now i'm not dr doom and i'm not shedding from the rooftops let me let me say one other thing just real quick like people like this that are frequently saying the world is coming to an end might have been saying this since 2016 2017 you know what you know what returns have happened since 2017 in the stock market in the housing market, everywhere else. Like you can't just sit on the sidelines all the time or that's a surefire way to end up with a bad outcome, but you can hedge. What do you think? Yeah, agreed. And I think that that's from 
putting Dr. Doom aside, I think uh, just my own thoughts, I'm in agreement that I think we have to raise interest rates. Like it, I think it has to happen. We as a, uh, as an economy, and I think as investors just have to think about what that means. And it doesn't, to your point, it's not sitting on the sidelines, but even going back to our last conversation, <laughs> this is not investment advice, but think about what investments there could be, yeah, yeah. right? Um, that, that could hedge your portfolio or help with your portfolio in those circumstances. And so the timing of this, who knows, but I think the logic behind it makes a heck of a lot of sense that all these forces are sitting in play and they're dangerous together. And I do think that the a way out um, would be to increase interest rates, but it's really a way through. I shouldn't say a way out, um, but we should be ready for it. Like what are the, are all these zombie companies that have lots of debt? Um, what are the ones that need to be around? And what are the yeah. ones that maybe we don't save? I just think we just need to be ready for this stuff because it's it's got to happen. And the more that we pump it up, the worse it's going to be on the way down. Our current leadership on both sides, this is not, this is not about Republicans or Democrats. There seems to be no willingness to tighten the belt in Washington and make tough decisions about, you know, it's not, it doesn't seem yeah. like we have a limited amount of money that we have to figure out how we spend in the most beneficial way possible. It seems like there's a thought that we have an unlimited amount of money. You know, when we get sick of yelling at each other, our compromise will be, oh, well, you wanted this and I wanted that. We'll just make the check larger. Yep. We won't actually make hard decisions to compromise. I guess that's my soapbox and I can get off of it. There's no no need. Stay up there. Stay up there. Someone <laughs> might pull it out for none of you. But... And what, what that's leading to, this is another fishbowl item, is investor expectations yes. being outrageous. Man, do you want to cover some of the facts there? I mean, it's just depressing. So the stock market on average over the last 100 years returns – Somewhere between, somewhere around 7% a year. Dougal's fact check me. This is from memory. That, and then if you talk about real returns where you, you take out inflation and everything else, sometimes the real returns are around 5% a year. But again, these are ballpark numbers. Let's say a rational investor would say my return expectations might be between 5 and 10% a year, right? Current return expectations for U.S. investors, uh, I believe these are the highest return expectations of any country in the world, are 17.5%. And I think that's above inflation, right? It is. <laughs> it is. So uh, historical context, you'd be comparing to that 5-6% range. Investors are expecting 17%. This screams, gosh, I hate to be Dr. Doom. I'm not going to be. This screams that expectations are out of whack, which sometimes happens at the very top of a bubble. And so let's go back, sorry, to a conversation I think we had last week around you were saying it makes no sense to use a credit card to fund your, your investing. I'm not saying it does, but when your expectations start to get toward 20% a year. I love that tie-in, right? But even this, when, last week when we did the lending tree survey and it was like, oh, I, I take out debt on my credit card to finance this, even these individual investor expectations will not, they're lower than a credit card interest rate. Okay, here's the, here's the thing. Then they surveyed financial professionals and they said, what's your expectations? You'd think this is a more educated group as it relates to at least return expectations of the stock market, right? You think um, so? Their expectations is 6.7%, which is more reasonable, still not really in line with the facts of the day. 
But let's talk about a couple things. So one, what does that gap tell you, Dougals? The fact that the individual investors, the retail investors expect more than 10% annual returns over a finance professional. Here are the thoughts that go through my mind. We, we've looked at data before that says financial professionals miss their own expectations. We've yep. looked at the data that say individual investors miss everything, right? Like just generally don't make money. So the yeah. fact that there's a like a 10% gap to me just says like, we are at a, a point of optimism that is just so nonsensical and is going to, I think it's going to lead to people continuing to do some stupid stuff, stretching for, let me, let me bring, oh God, I, I will go Dr. Doom again and, and go Minsky because one of the things that uh, I think is interesting in when Minsky talks about debt is he talks about the Ponzi scheme, like um, analogy where you, you get to a point where you're borrowing so much from the future. And then when the future doesn't come, you're, you're done. This is a like micro strategy. We talk, whether this happens to them or not, it's what we talked about, right? You have to pump up Bitcoin in order to be able to run your business now. And you're borrowing against the future for Bitcoin to happen. I think it's very similar. People are just going to, if they want 17.5% returns, they're going to do whatever they can to try and get 17.5% returns. That probably means leverage. And then once that starts to not happen, which everything says it will <laughs> like there's, yeah. there's there's no evidence that says it won't it's a certainty it, right? again we don't yeah, know exactly. when and it, it exactly. could even be 10 years but it's a certainty that eventually all that leverage catches up with you just makes me sad man you know so is there is there one company to blame here Dougals? is there one company that's gone out of the way to help retail investors <laughs> get into the stock market <laughs> you want to go there are you, are you poking at robin hood yeah, I'm, and, and to be fair, I, I'll clarify that I'm joking there. I think Robinhood's fine. I, I don't think they're a villain. But uh, they did file S1 this week, didn't they, Deagles? They did. They did. And it is a, uh, well, a very boring document. Um, but but there, are, there are two things that came out of that document for me that if I can just take a couple minutes to highlight, I will. Please. Will you give me? Okay. So one is... Robinhood is, they state their mission as democratizing finance. So as a part of that, yeah. you would expect that more people that haven't invested before are going to invest with them. The rest one shows this to be the case. So to drop a, a couple figures, as of December 31st of 2020, March 31st of 2021, so there's the quarter difference, they had 12.5 million and 18 million net cumulative funded accounts, respectively. That's a huge growth, right? From 12.5 to 18. From January 2015 to March 31st, 2021, over half of the customers' funding accounts in their platform told us that this was their first brokerage account. So flat out, people that have not invested before are coming around. So they are, check the box. Hey, they're doing how else are you going to buy your Dogecoin? All right. Exactly. Well, this is the problem. Yeah. This is the problem. The second fact, which this just, I'm, I can't say blew my mind, but like <laughs> it, it made me sit further deeper into my chair. I'll tell you that much. As of December 31st, 2020 and March 31st, 2021, $3.5 billion and $11.6 billion. Look at that, that change in growth were attributed to cryptocurrencies. What percent of those cryptocurrency of that cryptocurrency revenue do you believe came from Dogecoin? Ooh, 50? Not quite, 34%. So let's just call it a third. This is, it's literally a joke. Like a third of a third of their revenue is like Joke's literally- Joke's on you, Dougals. Joke's <laughs> on you. <laughs> Egg on my face. 
<laughs> I, I looked at this. So, but those two things together, right? We're, we're getting all kinds of new people coming on the platform and all kinds of new people are making revenue for us via a joke. I read an interesting thing on crypto this week, a critique, and I, I can't remember where, but it was so interesting. It was kind of validating, like it's got traction and it's in the uh, society's nomenclature and like, uh, there's so many positives, but it also said like, as soon as interest wanes, because they're in a lot of cases, they're not a direct tie to like business value. Like exactly. I don't need my one Bitcoin. Well, my point zero 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 one Bitcoin to go buy my soda at the Dollar Tree. Like as soon as there's not like this gravitational pull in terms of society's mental interest in it, like what happens? It just made me think as something like Bitcoin gets more traction as maybe governments, more governments other than El Salvador, where I'm going to have my surf condo embrace this. It, I mean, maybe that changes, but that was a fun perspective that, that I think is, is just a, a nice yeah. thing to think about right now. It is, it has to remain in the human psyche or it's in trouble. Because yep. if there's not interest, there's not demand, and there's not that built-in capacity for demand. But I got a sidetracked. Yeah, I mean, but th this is this is not a business that is recession-proof, flat out. Robinhood. Yeah. Oh no, no, it's as procyclical as it gets, right? Especially when you're all about or trying to be more about the retail investor side, who is going to have the wildest swings with emotion when it comes to um investing it's going to be your retail investors who is also i don't want to say this flat out but likely the ones using leverage in a way that might be unsafe it's probably your retail investors as well well i don't know we, we got people that are what 10 to 20 100x leverage that are <laughs> taking down hedge funds oh, elsewhere so, but i hear i think from a uh, from maybe not a quantity of dollars but a quantity of individuals perspective you're right like, absolutely. Oh, I tell you what. As we talk investing, let me know if there's anything else you want to hit specific to Robinhood. But um, I saw a good kind of 10-step checklist on Twitter this week that I was going to throw out. You want to talk through that? Yeah, run through it. All right. So this is from uh, R.Y. Christie, reputable, uh, smart lady. I think she used to be with Morningstar, but it appears like she's not with them anymore. Um I think she runs an endowment these days. Simple facts. I don't know that I agree with all these, but I, I definitely want to mention them of kind of a 10-step a process that you should do if you're thinking about investing. Our listeners range from basic novice investors to people that like us yelling at each other to professional investors. So this might not be applicable for everybody, but a couple of key points. The first thing she says, which is just, it's just great. If you're thinking about buying a stock, be willing to spend one to two hours doing research. If that's all you learn from this, I think that's a good thing to do. Now, hey, we just talked about Robinhood. If you're spending 10 bucks somewhere and you don't want to, that's fine. But if you're talking about thousands of dollars, I think you better be comfortable doing one to two hours of research. The The first step she recommends is, is a Google search. And I just love it. Like You should know what the online presence of this company looks like. That's kind of the new yellow pages. That's kind of like, well, it's, it's kind of like the new stepping foot in the store in yeah. a way. A lot of these are online marketplaces. 
what one thing that that makes me think about is uh, when I was uh, learning how to how to code, one of the sources I was um, that I was looking at said you have to be good at technical sophistication. And when it defined technical sophistication, it said understanding how to Google to find the answer to the thing that you can't figure out how to code. And <laughs> I just I loved that. Like don't don't get too crazy with it. There's a lot of information out there, and you have to yeah. be able to know how to you know differentiate between your sources, but. <laughs> I love that. So step one, use some technical sophistication to do some basic research on the code. <laughs> step two is probably pull up the 10K. For those who don't know, the 10K is the annual report uh, required for public companies. 10K has tons of great stuff, but I mean, read the basics. What's their product? What are, where's the majority of their revenue come from? What does their historical growth look like? In terms of looking at trending analysis, you know, Neither Dougal's nor I often uh, invest in like IPO or very young companies. So if it's a more mature company, pull up Morningstar um, and look at trends. Pull up uh, Koifin is a good one. That's oh, K-O-Y-F-I-N. Um, it's, mm. a, it's a solid one too. Look at some trends. Try and figure out what questions jump off the page. And then... If you're comfortable going for it, the last and most important step is to send it to at Skippy Dougals <laughs> on Twitter or Skippy Dougals at Gmail. All right, I made that up. And I, I, I like that list with the, the high level theme basically being just do do some research and have an understanding of what you're buying. And it right. doesn't have and to be too complicated. That's not too much to ask. It doesn't have I to mean, be too complicated. And then like we might get into it in another episodes, but there should be some things that are red flags, like tons of debt or yeah. um, massive dilution of shares. There, There's some yeah. basic red flags you might want to look for. But start with that. If you're not doing that, there's there's room to improve your process, I think, is what I'd say. Can I use this as an opportunity to give you a, a different list, um, which I think yeah. is people should adhere to this whenever possible? So I saw a tweet from at Taylor Offer. I recently talked to a 25-year-old who made $50 million last year. Here are his five keys to success. Are you ready? Get your pen out. No? Wake up at 6 a.m. and meditate. Read a book a week. Work out two times per day. Turn 25 and get $50 million trust fund from your dad. And drink a gallon of water every day. If you work hard, you can do anything. I do most of those things every day. <laughs> See, there you go. So you're, you're on your way. Oh, uh, I mean, so I think we should wrap with uh, a brilliant investor and dominant figure in Silicon Valley, your oh. boy, Mark Andreessen. Oh, okay. Spit. He did a podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy this week, and I don't mention Patrick enough because he's just brilliant. Um, if you don't do the Invest Like the Best podcast and you're into that sort of thing, you you should puts out incredible content he's also now doing business breakdowns there's like there's the founder's field guide um tons of great stuff coming out of his company is so sorry i got sidetracked with how much i like patrick but <laughs> mark andreessen uh was on the show and they covered a wide variety of things it's a definite recommendation from me the thing i found most interesting is his discussion of how prices have diverged uh, when it relates to things like televisions and basic uh, technology as compared to 
housing, education, and healthcare in the US. A TV, let's say 10 years ago, when flat screens were kind of first coming out and hitting mainstream. I mean, you used to spend, I don't know, 1200 bucks for a 35 inch that wasn't that nice that wasn't i think it was technically hd but it wasn't 4k you know it wasn't 8k it wasn't any of the things we deal with today that same television is like maybe 100 bucks today i mean it's just dirt cheap and his basic question starts with why has something like why has the cost of something like that been decreased so much when like the cost of healthcare is through the roof and the cost of secondary education in the US is through the roof and the housing crisis i'm going to call it a crisis now housing prices are well documented in many of america's desirable places to live it's basically unaffordable for someone who even a, a college grad who's fairly new out of college like there's just no way that income levels allow you to afford what we thought of was the american dream so his thought here is we have as a society, almost idealized those things. Those three things he'd say are core to the American dream, right? A good education, a nice place to live, and basic healthcare. And then he argues in a way that because of that psychology, our government has taken measures with, I'd call them decent intent, that have had unintended consequences that have actually made those things less affordable. If you talk about education, for the longest time, in the 90s and 2000s, everyone said, oh, the cost of a college degree is getting so much more expensive. And Washington's reaction to that was, we better ensure that there's more federal aid available. And because they put bigger pools of federal aid out there, the disconnect between the two value, true value of a college degree and the actual cost of a college degree, even wi it widened more because there was more money you know, in that supply and demand equation. Fascinating cool. stuff. I think all those markets are broken from my perspective and they all are disconnected from the true value. And I don't know the solution, but f the first thing I'd want your take on is, do you think that's true? Do you think the government in those three sectors has largely played a role in um, the fact that the asset prices are going insane? Um, I do think that the government plays a role in this. It's it's similar to the conversation that we've had throughout much of the rest of this episode is that the government support or I'll say general subsidizing subsidizing of these industries only matters when the subsidies stop. And when the subsidies stop, then we have a problem. Meaning that so long as federal aid always exists, right, for college, college can get more and more expensive and so long as the federal aid always exists, but one day it won't. Like what well, it, it it someday the 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 money has to run out. The tide goes out, and someone swimming naked, right? To use Buffett's, yeah. like at some point that has to happen. But I, but I do agree that to a certain extent, the government's played a role. I don't think it's all government. I think with um with education, the government's played a a pretty significant role. But I also think that there have been places where the government's tried to push back um, against it. But it's you have to look at between public and private schools and how what their incentives um, have been and what they've been trying to drive, especially for profit schools. In education, I think our whole, our healthcare system is just fully upside down. I mean, that is a that's like nonsensical the way that we we charge there. Like fee for service, effectively, is just not a as opposed to for outcomes. Like, yeah. like that's not helpful. Housing, 
has its own, I think, housing driven by um, the way I'd say the government has played a significant role there is mostly through uh, the cost of debt for the for the most part, at least over the past right 12 years. And so well, it's the not other housing thing directly. That, yeah, go ahead. There's three key things with housing. One is communities that end up being like the wealthiest communities often decide that they want to put a gate around it and they don't want it to ever yeah. change. Yep. So that limits supply and yep. then and then values go through the roof. The I think where governments have played a role is the cost of debt. That's at the federal level. But at the local level, building codes and everything are mm -hmm. pretty much the least progressive thing you can get. So an analogy that he included, and it, I see this stuff all the time on like TikTok-y videos of, hey, this new machine uses some special clay to build a house for some third world country yep. in two days, and it's amazing, and the house costs 5000 bucks and blah, blah, blah. It appears that the the local building codes in the U.S. really make that sort of thing difficult, but it, it's kind of crazy. What's that? I, I haven't looked much into like how those two things are related, but it it makes sense. It has taken it's taken forever. We see some companies that are that are coming up right now that are trying to tackle that space, but it's taken so long for us to get there. And something that's such an obvious problem. Yeah, and I would say I haven't done deep research on this, but I, just think about that. You know that the average cost of a home in America now is more than $350,000. There was a, a tiny house movement that might still be going on for a while because people were rebelling against that and basically having these tiny things on wheels that were more in the range of 50K. But why is there no progressive building standards to build nice houses for 100K? Can you imagine the demand for those sort of things? Yeah, Almost regardless huge. of location. Huge. If you could, if you're within an hour drive of a metropolitan area and you could have a livable home yeah. for a hundred K, like that would be, especially right now with people yeah. trying to exit the cities. And, and I don't, I don't see why that's so bad. So let's make that happen. And then, I mean, healthcare, I don't even know that I can talk about healthcare without getting incredibly frustrated, but the, the fact that we've gone out of our way as a society to disconnect like the how do you say this if i go to the gas station and buy a coke i know that coke costs a dollar fifty i hand over my money and i receive my good the way our insurance companies have gotten in the, the middle of those transactions so it's never transparent the true value of the service you're receiving and 90 plus percent of the time in my experience when asking for the true value of that good at the time of service they can't even venture a guess no they can't i mean they, that's they, as broken they as don't know they can't know it's ridiculous they can't know i mean that's no yeah, they, you, i mean i mean at, at the point of sale like a it's this isn't for every type of service in healthcare, but many of the times like they, they don't know <laughs> like it's not a the doctor cannot tell you how much it's going to cost because it depends on a number of different factors and you, you go back to like someone like Adam Smith. I mean, if he was writing how to break an economic system, that would be, that's no, point number one. You disconnect transparent price at the time of transaction. Yeah. These are not uh, luxury decisions. It's not like I'm, I want a new jacket and I walk into the store. I already have like three jackets in my closet and I'm like, hey, does this one cost like, $10, $300, or $7,000. And 
and they're like, oh, I don't know. I, we'll bill you in 60 days. Then I just go, well, screw you. I have three jackets in my closet. In this case, like I actually need medical treatment. I almost can't say no. It's incredibly broken, but I don't, I don't have a solution there um, other than just to rip the, it all up and destroy it. The solutions it. exist all around the world. Countries just do this differently. <laughs> Um, it's just anywhere a, but America. Yeah. How do you get from where we are to where they are? I think is the question. Like, but it's it's out of control. Okay. So then to tie back to education, there's part of me that says the debt financed by the federal government is a huge issue. Just turn that off tomorrow. And what's gonna happen across the board, even at places like Harvard, is the cost of a college degree is gonna be reduced significantly, in my opinion. If there, if that money doesn't exist, I would venture a guess that um, in 2022, the average cost for a college degree would be cut by like 50%. Just bear with me on this crazy thought experiment, right? The thing I love about that is you start to more freely connect the true value of a college degree to what people pay for it. I think that's a good thing. The thing I hate about that is the people that can't scrounge up that money are probably the ones that are adversely impacted. And that's why our politicians have got into this game of putting more debt out there to try and not make it a, a complete elitist thing. How do we handle this? Yeah. Part of the issue, it gets it starts to you have to unwind this in in a relatively surgical way because there's there's an assumption that you're making there that the debt that's taken out and this is mostly for the um, for the group that you you mentioned, right? That that need that financing, it's taken out for tuition, and so and there's always a mix, right? But it's taken out for tuition, it's taken out to pay for your housing, it's taken out like to live. I think in, in a lot of ways, and so there's there's a system. I think is my broader point that's hard to unwind, and so I wouldn't say that tuition necessarily goes down that quickly. Now, obviously, the more money that comes in, just you know. Too much money chasing chasing too few goods is the the definition of in of inflation at its most basic level, and so costs have to go down, but the systemic costs aren't just tuition. True. So costs would come down in um, in rural towns where the college is the main draw, and the college artificially inflates rents and maybe artificially inflates the cost of goods. Those would pull back as well. Yeah, but but this my I think my broader point in this kind of uh, there's somewhat of a not so tight bow, but some sort of a bow, I think around a lot of our conversation is that there are these house of cards that are built. And while you, while you might say, I'm going to reduce this funding source and that'll reduce this one other thing, there's actually probably a lot that's tied to it. And at a certain point we might say, well, let it come down. Right. And, and let, and let's see. But, but we, you just you kind of have to think about all these points and how they how they flow together. It's a we've we've built a complicated nonsensical web, and it's hard to pull apart. Yeah, you totally nailed it. I guess I guess really that happens with all debt. Yeah, and uh, well, all runaway debt. You know, all debt yeah. that there's there's the debt where I need a hundred bucks to buy groceries this week and. I pay that off and I never touch debt again or, or I need a mortgage or whatever else, you know, like there's lots of sustain sustainable levels of debt. And I just think the government has run away from reality here on we the are. education side. 
we're we're and, oh, and many sides. <laughs> yeah. But but to your point, and unless you want that to fall apart, not knowing what the unintended consequences have become or will be, it just perpetuates the cycle. Yeah. The answer probably isn't just keep pushing things higher with the solution question mark, right? But but if we, we know that there's damage, economic damage that's coming from doing what we're doing today, then at least we got to figure out how to slow that train down. Yeah, um, completely agree. You've made me think a lot today. Anything else in the fishbowl, Dougals? My fishbowl is empty. All right, hit us up on Twitter, at Skippy Dougals. And uh, Skippy Dougals at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from the listeners. 